so <clears throat> we have this great description of love that is going on throughout uh, the uh, books of first, second, and third John, particularly first uh, John. <clears throat> he, you know, talks about God being love, and and so much of our culture uh, thinks along those lines, and they they misunderstand uh, because. Uh, the biblical defini the def biblical definitions of love <clears throat> are so much more complex than uh, you know what our American culture uh, looks at and thinks of uh, you know and particularly you know the 60s um, and and what you know free love and the whole hippie generation was uh, wishing for and longing for and promoting as love which was <clears throat> really very very selfish and very destructive and self-centered and self-seeking, whereas the love that's being described here is entirely others. It is the, the self-sacrificial love of God. And, and um, we're presently in the place where God is talking about his love of the, as the Father is so potent in self-sacrificing love that he was willing to sacrifice his son for his love for others. It's astonishing when you consider, um, you know, from a human perspective, <clears throat> it's nearly impossible to understand. Uh, you know, hedonistic, rebellious, destructive people who wanted nothing to do with God. God said, I love them so much. I'm going to take my perfect son and, and I'm going to force him into embracing, taking on all of their sins. So it's astonishing to consider that, that Jesus, you know, I'm talking mystical, spiritual, that he would become a child molester, that he would become, you know, a genocidal maniac. He took those sins upon himself in order that anyone that wanted to be forgiven his blood would cover that. That's that's the love of the Father. Okay, you know, we look at it like, oh, agape love, unconditional love. Like, you got to look at how deep that goes. Unconditional is to the point where Jesus bore my sin, bore your sin. So it's really an astonishing consideration. And so we're in the midst of that thought in verse 17 when that love that's being described, verse 17, says love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Meaning <clears throat> that you don't have to approach this throne of grace with any fear and trepidation. Th that Christ took your sin and he bore it away from you. And he suffered the punishment, the wrath of God. You come as Jesus, covered by, covered in his blood. You're camouflaged as Jesus. You're disguised in the Father's eyes. He only sees his son, right? I don't know about you, but how often my memories plague me. The guilt that just springs up in my mind and staggers me. And uh, if I'm going to cling to that, listen, hear me in this, right? Because there's a profound difference, and we've talked about this many times, between shame and guilt, okay? The price has been paid. The guilt has been erased. The, you know, I was a criminal years ago. I turned myself into the police. Judge sentenced me. I went to jail. I paid. I have shame as a result of my past conduct, but I paid the price, right? I was sentenced, and I went to jail, and I... Served with good time. You know, I, 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 I did what I was supposed to do while I was there. Debt covered. Nobody can try me for that again and send me back to jail. It's already been taken care of. You know, in a, in a, in a much greater sense, Christ paid everyone's debt. So for us to wallow in the pain and the misery of our past is really saying Jesus didn't cover the debt. It's already been paid. You know, if you believe that, if you trust that, then, then embrace the freedom Christ has given you and move out of that. 
Don't, don't let your, you know, others sometimes are cruel enough to shame us for our past. But the ones that shame us most is our own mind, our own memories. We need to learn the process of letting Christ's payment cover that. right? Because if I'm going to sit around and wallow and feel terrible about myself, then to a degree, maybe entirely, what I'm saying is Christ's payment doesn't cover it. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wallow in the memory and the pain and the defeat of my past. Christ took care of all of that, right? I mean, what are you going to, you know, what am I going to do? Go back and, you know, sit in an unlocked prison cell? I mean, I've been set free. Debt's paid. Why be there? You know, so it is here. He's talking about in the presence of the Lord, you know, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You know, uh, Christ's coming shouldn't be fearful for you, right? We don't have to walk around thinking, oh, I hope, I hope that he's, you know, going to forgive me. I hope he's going to accept me. Have you asked him to? Because if you have, then he has. I don't feel like that. Well, that doesn't really matter, <laughs> right? The debt's been paid. Christ has promised you that it has been covered. So this is the boldness that the scripture is assuring us of. Hebrews gives us a great sense of that boldness and how we can go boldly before the throne. Uh, Christ covered this debt. Now, you know, think about it in your own mind. I'll give this little illustration and then you think about it in your own mind. You know, uh, if somebody paid for your meal, right? You're in a restaurant, you run into a friend, you know, and and uh, you talk for a little while and then you go up to the counter and, and they've paid for your meal before you can get out the door. And you're like, darn it, you know, they got ahead of me and now I'm going to have to, you know, try to do that for them, bless them in that way. If somebody's paid the meal, are you going to be like, no, no, I insist I have to pay again? Good grief, no, right? You know, that frees me up. I can't go, awesome, what, what a blessing. I didn't know. You know. They've paid that, Christ has paid the debt. So so why would we anguish over whatever guilt may be? If you've truly asked Christ to forgive you, make you, you know, his child, cause you to be born again, fill you with his Holy Spirit, the past is gone. It's wiped out. You're anxiously waiting for Christ to return and, and provide you with reward and glory. That's what, that's what we're looking forward to. So here, you know, it, it is uh, the boldness in the day of judgment because he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Now listen, right? the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, wait a minute. No, no fear. What is this? Uh, you know, there's no, no, no fear in love. This, this is not what's being described here, right? You know, there most of us that had good parents also feared those parents, right? Why? Because there were rules, and he's going to talk about the commandments. Why? They were necessary. This isn't like you have to obey these commandments, and if you don't obey these commandments, then I'm not going to love you. Okay, that's that's not what we're talking about here at all. This is a matter of understanding the authority, uh, you know, the degrees of authority. Some people don't understand that within Christianity. You know, consider this, right? If um, if I'm in public and here comes somebody that doesn't like me and they cuss me out and say all kinds of terrible things and they spit on me, I might be able to get a police officer's attention and, you know, maybe, maybe they would get in trouble, right? If the president is in town and you do that to the president you are going to find yourself locked up really quick. If God is in town, okay, there are measurements of offense. Right? We sometimes don't like that. Like, well, it should be the same for everybody. No, no. No, there is literally a hierarchy of authority. And if you tangle with that, then you're going to have to reap the outcomes of that. You offend me, well, then, right, that's all we got is, is the me versus you level of conflict. You offend a head of state, uh, you got an entirely different, you offend God, look out. The fear of God is a very real thing. And that is, you know, it isn't the fear of, oh, I've lost my salvation, right? It's the fear of we need to have the reverence that is God. 
the fear that causes torment is back up to what we were talking about of the guilt and you know the rejection and the thought that God doesn't love me no he loved you so much that he poured your sin upon his own son and his son that's how much he loves you and as a result you need to have a reverence this is the one that we have also to offend the one who paid the cost you need to consider uh, what's going on there uh, the the Fear that causes torment is not of God. And, and there's much of that in the world, right? You know, I, I liken this to parents. Certain parents, you know, they, um, it would be child abuse if, you know, I talk about this. My mother was a single mother. She raised three teenage boys. And I'll tell you, there was some conflict along the way. And there reached a point in the conflict where she could not handle us anymore. Okay? She did not give up. Those of you that know Sheila Cass, there's a certain determination in that woman's mind. And she announced to us at one point that this oak slat that had been part of a bed frame was now going to be her equalizer. We, we were getting too big for our britches. And uh, look, if, if we, we came to refer to the oak slat as the brown persuader, brown wood, she could persuade you to do anything with it. Okay. The brown persuader, the equalizer. If that thing came out, there usually wasn't any talk. The talk had already occurred, but if the brown persuader came out, you knew it was all going downhill from there. There was not going to be any more talk. You were told to do what you need. And she never asked more of us. We were just being defiant teenagers. And she was going to level the playing field. Because she was a frail little woman. And so now she's got a weapon. And like I said, if you were promoting this in today, right, they're going to come looking for my mom now. You watch. <laughs> <sighs> Hopefully as an example, right, to follow. You know, in that, she managed us well. And, and I mean, rarely, rarely was that thing ever even, you know, produced, let alone used. But she proved to us that she would follow all the way through with that thing. And we were going to do what had been asked of us. So, you know, this, this you know, authority... That's that's being here. That you know the the perfect love. I had a good mom. I had good upbringing, and and I didn't have fear. I had friends that had terrible parents, and there was tremendous fear in their household, and it wasn't from love. It was from neglect, and it was from abuse. It was from horrible things. That's not Christ. That's not our heavenly Father. Right? His discipline, right? Some of us have experienced it. And, and let's be blunt. It's some of us that have experienced God's discipline. It's been harsh. And yet, what was it for? Our good. Right? And that's what Hebrews tells us. That the, the love of the Father that disciplines us. If he wasn't disciplining us, then the New King James puts it nicely by saying that we are illegitimate. If we're not disciplined by our heavenly father then we're illegitimate children i'm not going to tell you what the king james says it's so coarse right you can look it up on your own you need to like the discipline of your heavenly father he's, he's trying to keep us from pain that we inflict upon ourselves he's trying to steer us toward goodness away from destruction it's a blessed thing. God doesn't, you know, they, you get the impression from some people who don't know God, maybe even hate God, you know, like God is this terror who destroys and kills. That's not our Heavenly Father. He's good. He's kind. He's loving. You know, even when it's harsh, as I say again, it's to provide good for us. It's to do good for us. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect. And again, 
the, the New King James and sometimes the King James and many of the modern uh, translations use that term perfect and we get confused because we think flawless. Okay, in the New King James and otherwise, it has the, the sense of complete, right? So, so here, but he who fears has not been made complete in love. If you run away from God and hate God and you're fearful of God in that sense, then you haven't been completed in the You don't know God. If you know God, then, then what he has and provides for us. We love him because he first loved us. That's why we love him. He first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we, we didn't change our mind like, yeah, I want to be a follower of Christ. It was his goodness that led to our repentance. It was his kindness. It's such a wonderful thing to consider. He, John is painting a, a very detailed picture here in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother. Now, we got to get very specific, right? Because uh, we're talking about spiritual family. And you're only spiritual family if you've been born again. So if you can verify, well, that person's a Christian, undoubtedly. And I am a Christian, undoubtedly. And I hate that guy. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work. If you're part of the family of God, then there's no room for hatred whatsoever. Okay. Now, brothers, Christian brothers, sin against Christian brothers. Unfortunately, why? We're human, right? And Jesus very specifically tells us that if your brother sins against you, you go to him and you speak to him alone. And if he doesn't listen, you take another with you. We get specific directions as to how to deal with offense. So there will be there will be offense in the body of Christ. If you've got that mentality, like you're looking for the perfect church, you know, what do the old timers say? If you find it, don't go there because you'll ruin it, right? Because we're imperfect. Uh, so, so there's going to be trouble, there's going to be offense, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be challenges, and you're supposed to know how to work in maintenance to correct those relationships. Th that's a very clear command. You can look at what's written in Matthew about how to handle those things. But if there has been a deterioration, and, and, and I do mean between brothers, to the point where one would say, I hate that person. Uh, something's desperately wrong. Uh, the, the, the whole thing has come off the rails, and uh, people need to work at reconciliation at that point. If well, you can verify the person that would say, I hate uh, that person, right? To say that you hate them is to wish destruction upon them. Uh, no, none of us should ever wish that upon anyone. Uh, in this situation, uh, the person who says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a, he is a liar, the scripture declares here. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You, you say you hate that person and, and, and uh, you know, you're able to see in this sense, it's the idea of <clears throat> it's kind of a long speculation that I'm doing here, but. If you can see them, <clears throat> you should be able to see yourself, right? Are their flaws any worse than your flaws? So if you can say, I hate them for their flaws, for their sin, then like, what about yourself? Do you want the grace of God? Surely you do. Then you should want it for them. Yeah, you hate their conduct, right? Maybe you need to back up a little bit, <laughs> you know? Rather than implying hate, you know, upon I desire judgment, I desire death, I desire hell. I hate them? That's strong words. Okay? To say that thing they did to me was wrong, you know, and they really should apologize for it. That's accurate, you know, if they've in fact sinned against you. And then again, I would ask you, doesn't the scripture tell you you have an obligation to do something about that? Right to try and reconcile. Look, I've been through full boat reconciliation with people and gotten to the end, and they don't want anything to do with it. You know, gone to them alone, taken another, brought it before church leadership, and no. 
look, I've exhausted the circumstance. <clears throat> and uh, at that point, you know, the scripture says, <clears throat> treat them as a heathen or a tax collector. And a whole bunch of people go, awesome. That was, see, that's, now I can hate them. That's not what the scripture says we're supposed to do with heathens or tax collectors. We're supposed to win them over. We're supposed to convert them. Right? That, that's the job at that point. So, so here's the thing. You start out going, this person is a brother and they've sinned against me. I'll go and talk to them alone. They don't listen. You take another and they don't listen. You bring it before church leadership and they don't. Well, maybe now you can go, maybe this person isn't my brother, heathen or tax collector. Oh, I got to take a totally different approach here. I can't take a Christian angle. I need to deal with them on the level of you need to repent. If they have actually sinned against you in such a way and refuse repentance, right? We've recently, even in the book of 1 John, talked about homologeo, right? To say the same thing. If you've been to them, here, I'll just tear this apart while we're here. Sometimes what happens, and I've seen this in a handful of times, is you go to the brother and you say, you've sinned against me. And they say, no, I haven't. I refuse to repent. And you leave and you go find somebody and bring them back and say, okay, now we're both here to confront you. And as you say, you've sinned against me. And they say, no, you haven't. This one listening says, hey, Will, maybe you're not seeing the details here this person is describing. And before we're done, I realize, oh, I've got a portion of repentance to do. Right? You don't want to always just bring someone with you that's a yes man. You go around and interview people. <laughs> I'm going to go confront this person over here, and they've sinned against me this way. Do you agree with me? <laughs> and when they go, yes, I agree with you. Okay, you can come with me. <laughs> You just go find a mature Christian brother. And when you sit down, sometimes that person sees both sides and is able to do a little bit of mediation. And, and you're able to come to the realization. If that's gone on and they refuse, and then you bring the church leadership, and by then, right, certainly church leadership should be mature enough to say, hey, 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 there's more to this picture than you're describing, Will. You're making it sound very one-sided, but have you considered your brother's side of the story? And, and you get the things out on the table, right? The effort of, of seeking them alone, then bringing someone else, then bringing church leadership is to try and keep it as small as you possibly can. That's why Jesus described it that way. Here's a rule of thumb I have discovered and uh, put to practical use within all ministry. It's gossip if the person you're talking to is not part of the problem or part of the solution. They don't need to be involved. So if you've brought somebody and they're part of solving the problem and you sit down, you keep it small, you talk to them with a group of others, you know, even if there are people, they're part of solving the problem. Now you've come to that end they won't hear you at that point, then you can treat them as a heathen or a tax collector, meaning you need to win them over to the faith. They're not involved in repentance. Hamalageo, saying the same thing. God says this is sin, and they go, no, it's not. So you need to work on them until they say, you're right, that is sin. I did mess up. You know, I... <sighs> I had a friend, and I'll be as vague as I can about this, and uh, he came into our fellowship years ago, and he was, a number of things he was saying just didn't add up yeah, about the way he was living, and um, I finally, just through little bits of conversation, said, wait a minute, what about this girlfriend that you've mentioned? Like, she's not here, and what's going on, and, you know... It takes hours, but finally he confesses, um, yeah, we're living together sexually. Unmarried, we're living together. I said, wait a minute. 
You just told me last week you're leading worship in a church. Yeah, I'm the worship leader over at that other church. Are they aware that you're living in sin with this woman? And, you know, long drawn out thing. No. Okay. And he goes through the whole process of saying, um, spiritually, we're married. And I'm trying to confront him with, no, you're not. You're, you're stealing from her. Because you can walk away from this relationship at any moment. And you leave her high and dry. That, that is wrong. And it's, you're damaging her. You're taking advantage of someone who, according to your confession, is another sister in the Lord. So, you, so you're, you're burning your sister in Christ. This makes no sense whatsoever. So rather than repent, he just cut ties with me and continued on until he had destroyed his work in that fellowship and his relationship with that young woman. I was heartbroken, and I see him years later. And I'm hopeful, right? And before the end of the discussion, I discover he's doing that whole thing with another woman again. To which I had to get down to, you're making me wonder whether you're even my brother. I, I wish I could say with a confidence that you are. But this is what John is saying right here. Right about the evidences, and especially as we move into chapter 5, this is the earmark of a brother or a sister. They're going to say the same thing. If God says, that's sin. But when we, as a child of God, look at it, we're going to say, that's sin. Whether it's part of our life or someone else's life. Right? This one here is specifically a brother. And the person that would say, I hate them. Oh, that's the person that needs to examine their own heart. If we can confirm that's a brother and I'm a brother and yet I hate that person, something's desperately wrong with my heart. If I can say I hate that person because we're supposed to be part of the same family and this love, right? This love <clears throat> is characteristically part of being part of the family. You know, we... Yeah, I, I use my daughter Abigail as an example. She was just five years old, and I had offended her. It was no big deal. It's a little kid, five-year-old thing. But as she's expressing her anger to me, she's doing all of these physical things that I do, literally like this, little five-year-old finger pointing at me. And, and she's, in particular, my hand, but she's, she's got this finger and this hand, and she's going, you said, you know, just like I would. And, and it's a genetic thing. Her expression, her face, and I had to repent before her and correct myself and ask for forgiveness, and we got on with it. But just that, that visual display of there's no denying that this is my child right here. Right, I'm, I'm looking at a little caricature of myself standing here. She is setting me straight. And, and she was right in, in the situation. Like I said, it was a small thing. It's a five-year-old thing. But she's setting me straight. And she's, she's doing all my manners. Our mannerisms of love should come this natural. Self-sacrificing. So how is it that we could ever come to the place to say, I hate that person who is my brother. That's not the character of our Heavenly Father. If that springs up, then that's the character of our flesh, our sin, the devil himself. you got to be very concerned about that. So consider how that might apply. If, if you've got that type of aggression, that hatred, that anger in your heart, then you got to really seriously ask, am I a child of God if I would behave this way? Got to be willing and ready to forgive. That character should come flowing out of us. So I'll just try to move on. And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother 
also. And again, that commandment, a bunch of people try to grab all these moments in the scripture that say commandment and say, see, we should live according to the law. Look, we've got all the examples in the scripture that talk about the freedom we have, you know, in Jesus Christ from living according. There, there are commandments that are even unwritten. You know, this one being one, you should not hate your brother. <laughs> you know, you should not build fires in your living room. Do we have to write that down somewhere? You know what I'm saying? I mean, these these are these are laws, God-given laws within nature, within the body. You know, as as blatant, I say that, and as blatant, right? Of course, we you never build a bonfire in the middle of the living room. That's just dumb. Well, we open the window. You know, and we put it inside this metal container. Shouldn't that be okay? You know, you just right? you've run into situations where people are doing dumb things, and you're like, "Well, what are you doing? Why would you behave this way?" And they try to give explanation, or maybe we try to give explanation in this way. Spiritually, it's plain that these things are wrong, and we shouldn't do. We should not hate our brother. That should not be part of Christian conduct. That should be beyond. Our behavior. And, and it should be alarming to you. No one should have to walk up to you and say, hey, I've noticed that you have a great animosity towards that person. <laughs> why do you hate them? And you go into some ex weird explanation about why. Uh, you should automatically recognize, I should automatically recognize when these things are wrong and when we should not be doing them. So whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 5, <clears throat> Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, look, we've already been through the great explanation of the Christ. There's only one ever in all of history. That's the way Christianity declared it. And Satan has polluted it by saying, oh, well, you know, there are Buddhist Christs and there are Islamic Christs and there are, you know, all these different. No, there's only one. And the scripture is very clear about who that is. And that's Jesus is born of God. There's great animosity towards this mindset in John's day. So he's making the clarity. Look, if someone confesses that Jesus is the one and only Savior of all mankind, then they're born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. So he gets a little bit of a, the Trinity woven in here. And uh, there's a little bit of a debate in the next section of verses. But We'll deal with that as we move along. So that idea of if you love, if you say you love God, then you must love the Son. And if you say you love the Son, then you must also love the Father. If you love the one who is begotten, then you love the one who begot. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now, uh, here, a little more clarity. Because, right, we go, oh, commandments, ten commandments, you know, all the law. Like, like, where do we stop with this? Or do we embrace it all? You know, people don't realize how far the law goes today. Uh, I, I get into arguments with people that are like, uh, well, you don't, you don't follow the law. So, therefore, you're not saved. You don't go to church on Saturday, and I notice that you eat pork, and you drink caffeine. And, you know, they get this list that they've developed. I immediately go to their clothing, and I almost always nail it there. Sometimes I have to go a little further, but I'll just say uh, that you know, suit looks polyester. <laughs> Is that a cotton shirt? Is it 100% cotton? Because if it's a 60-40 blend, then you're breaking the law. And they're like, what are you talking about? Oh, the scripture is very clear in the law. That as a believer, if you're going to keep the whole law, then you have to wear, you could wear all polyester as long as it's 100% polyester. Your clothing needs to be of one fabric, according to the law. A lot of people aren't even aware that that's part of the law. Where do you want to begin and end in the law, right? They know that the law says if you keep part of the law and fail at the other part, then you've failed at the whole law. They know that, but they try to isolate it down to things that they keep. Right? They don't eat pork and they don't drink caffeine. Not that that's contained in the law. They do weird things to try to create that. But they go to church on Saturday and you know they only read from the King James Version of the Bible. And they've got all kinds of weird things that they hold on to. Their 
portion of the law that they've created for themselves. But a whole bunch of other things that they don't even examine or look at. You know, particularly the clothing. And then you could find other obscure laws and fit things in. You know, do you travel beyond a certain distance on the Sabbath day? You keep it down to a Sabbath day's journey, right? Uh, do you kindle a fire on the Sabbath day? Do you cook food on the Sabbath day? Or is it all prepared the day before? There's so many things you could look at within the law. If you break one point, then you break all points within it. Jesus Christ simplified the law. For us, this is what I want to get to. Please hear me in this, right? There are two portions of the law Jesus Christ reiterated for the body of Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That makes it pretty simple, right? The more that I seek the Lord, the more I love the Lord the way that I should, the more I'm going to love the people around me the way that I should. And that will cause me to take a day's rest and be in worship of my heavenly father and care for those around me. If, you, if you're going to start keeping the law, right? Christ kept the law for you. He finished the law for you. And you're relying upon his completion of the law as your completion of the law. Why? Because Paul clearly stated no one can keep the law. It's impossible. None of us will be able to accomplish that. Christ alone is the one. So we rely upon his Perfection. So the commandment here is that twofold, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Have you read the whole law? Have you read the entirety of Levit Leviticus? Did you then move over to Deuteronomy and read all of Deuteronomy and think I'm going to keep all of these things? Uh, you know, who of you has ever been to Jerusalem once to honor the worship and Sabbath as it is commanded in the scripture? Right? There, there are so many things that Christ fulfilled that we rely upon his fulfillment. No need to be burdened. That's what I want us to understand this evening, right? You don't have to be burdened with, oh my gosh, I've got to leave here and start doing a whole bunch of things I've never done before and, and stop doing a whole bunch of things I always do and no, Christ fulfilled those things. Not burdensome, right? The Sabbath was given to man, not man to the Sabbath. Peace, rest is what Christ has called us to. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, a couple of things, right? Jesus creates the church and says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sideline note, <clears throat> revelation, Satan is given power to overcome the saints. And a bunch of people go, well, there's a contradiction. The simplicity of it, you guys, is really actually cool in that the church has already been raptured and it is in the presence of the Lord. And so it will not be overcome by Satan. All of the saints in the book of Revelation are going to have to be sacrificed in order to receive their salvation. They're going to they're be killed. right? You can't buy, sell, trade, have a job unless you've received the mark of the beast. If you refuse the mark of the beast, you're going to be put to death. So there'll be very few people who make it through without receiving the mark. Everyone else is going to die in the process. So the overcoming of the world is the now in the present in the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then this statement, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is that whole thing of the Gnostics, which is sort of underlying here. The Gnostics, separate religion, uh, are starting to grow in recognition and power and they sort of meld into Christianity and begin to pollute Christianity at this time. So John is putting that whole explanation up to say this isn't anything to do uh, with the faith. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you are not part of Christianity. He's just clarifying that. And we'll do this one more time, right? Horse begets horse, right? Dog begets dog, cat begets cat. 
God begets God. Son of God is God. There's, there's not lesser, not small g, not some other great prophet. God in the flesh, Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is God, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you've got your belief system right. That's what John is saying to all the people who are reading this in that day, who, who have been greatly confused by the Gnostics in the day. Verse 6, and I'll just forewarn you, 7 is a highly controversial verse, but we'll try to deal with it properly as we move through. So you might want to underline 7 as we even begin here. This is he who came by water and blood. I just I want to confuse you as much as I can with three verses, okay? So this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. See, simple, right? That's very complex. And every single commentator you're going to read is going to tell you that they are staggered by these three verses. It's a difficult passage. Number one, uh, verse 7 uh, doesn't even appear in any of the translations clearly until the 14th century. So we have a lot of translations that have been copied and none of them even contain verse 7, up until the 14th century. We have two occasions where verse 7 appears, but they are in footnotes. So verse 7 isn't incorporated into the actual reading of these three verses until you get to the 14th century. And then all the scholars stand up and want to fight at this point about whether that belongs in there. Simple explanation? Probably a copyist understood that the conflict of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, had grown in intensity to the place that these, verse 6 and 8, so much supported the idea of the Trinity that they took the footnotes and incorporated them into the actual passage. Right? For some people, that's very disturbing. Right, Because it's supposed to all be inspired by God, and that's somehow not inspired. Guess what? It is inspired. Okay, uh, It doesn't appear until the 14th century. I'm not troubled by that. Okay, Not the fact that it's included. I can literally read verse 6 and verse 8, and today get the understanding of the Trinity that I need. Okay, The fact that the church understood this, and over time brought it alongside and then eventually included it in isn't troubling to me. Okay, if it's troubling to you, well, is there a trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, how about this? Ready, note takers? Are you ready? Because your pencils don't look poised. You can get it from me later. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 28, verse 19, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, John chapter 1, verses 33 through 34, chapter 14, verses 16, 26, 16, 13 through 15, 20, verses 21 through 22, Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 38, Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, chapter 13, verse 14, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 6, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. So the, the Trinity, right? So, you know, you, I know you got all of that. Uh, point is, there's a ton of verses in the New Testament that support the Trinity without this one verse, right? Let's just say that adding this one verse was incorrect. It wasn't. But let's just say that it was. Does that nullify all the other verses that I just gave you? Okay, so, so we don't have to debate about the Trinity based upon this thing. Now back to the further confusion of these three verses. What's the water? What's the blood? 
what are we talking about here? Well, uh, there's a few debates. I'm going to give you a couple. First one is water by natural birth. A woman breaks her water and gives birth. And then Jesus shed his blood at the cross. So natural birth, supernatural birth, if you want to look at it that way. Okay. You, you want to look at it as baptism. Okay. Baptism and crucifixion. Fine. That's a good one. Uh, how about this? These three verses, 6, 7, and 8 combined, tell the Christians of that day that Jesus gave us salvation by coming as a real man. Right? They were saying, the Gnostics were saying, no, Jesus was a ghost. Jesus was a phantom. When he walked on the beach, he never left any footprints. The whole time he was on earth, no one ever saw him eat food. These are lies that the Gnostics made up. This tells us plainly water and blood. Jesus was physically baptized. Jesus was physically born. Jesus was physically killed. When they stabbed him in the side, water and blood poured out. He was a man. He was real. He was tangible. He was not some ethereal spiritual thing. Right? He physically died. And here's the punchline. He physically rose again. That, that's what we need to hold to. So, so, so this whole thing is just John making sure that these Christians understand Jesus was a real man through his whole process. Birth, death, burial, and resurrection. Is that enough for us regarding 6, 7, and 8? Verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Look, you, uh, here I am, John is saying, as a witness to these things. You believe me? How about you believe God? You know, my witness, you're, you're trusting it. Why? Because it's earthly. So you trust things that are earthly more than you trust things that are heavenly? Is what John is saying? You should be trusting the word. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he who has not believed the testimony that God has given his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, you don't know how many people I have shared that verse with. People inside Christianity, outside Christianity. People in Catholicism that have grown up all of their lives being taught, right? That Hopefully, if they've been good enough, then they'll be acceptable to God. Look... <clears throat> Have you struggled? Have you Okay, let's just do this. Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior? No, but you don't have to show your hand or anything, right? If you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, guess what? He's your Savior. Okay? You say, well, I've been pretty rotten. Join the club. Are you relying upon Jesus Christ as the source of your salvation or your conduct? Right? Because if you're saying I've been pretty rotten, then what are you saying? Uh, that I was hoping I would be good enough to where I would be acceptable to God. You never get to be good enough. And maybe that's actually part of your failing and your struggle, is you're not relying upon his goodness to free you from your character and from your flesh. He paid the price completely, completely at the cross. It is not your goodness. Your goodness should be a result of that price paid. Already paid, in full. It's already done. Justified, right? What do we say? Just as if I had never sinned. We are justified in Christ. He has removed all of these things. If you are in sin, you should be convicted. Because you're continuing to heap upon what has been paid. That's, that's hurtful to your present relationship with Christ, right? 
The freedom you could have right now, the joy you could have in your relationship with him is being presently damaged. You're putting upon yourself, not upon your relationship, not upon your reality, but upon your own mind, you're putting a guilty conscience. Only to yourself, because Christ has already paid the price. Simply put, cut it out. If you if you were reliant upon him for salvation, then function in that salvation today. Leave these things behind. If Christ is that payment, if you trust him for salvation, then you have already had your slate wiped clean. This is the testimony of God that has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, I'm deeply spiritual. Oh, so you've been born again? No, I hate born-again Christians. I, they do drive me crazy. So you, you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is sorry for your salvation? Oh, no, but I'm a deeply spiritual person. Well, no, you're not, according to this. Because if you reject the Son, then you reject the Father. So you do not have salvation. Uh, this process is all knit together. Uh, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. Now, 14 says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we have asked of him. <clears throat> that has been abused horribly in Christianity. Just ask for whatever you want. God will give it to you. You know, Name it and claim it in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. Uh, what is being said here is that if you have submitted yourself to Christ and you live in a relationship with him, right, then you will already desire the things that the Lord desires for you. I've quoted Psalm many times in this regard that tells us, right, that God will grant you the desires of your heart. The health, wealth, and prosperity movement says, see, so whatever you wish, you can ask for. That verse specifically says God will give you the proper desires in your heart. So when we read, God will grant you the desires of your heart, right? Do you remember a time where the deepest desires of your heart were incredibly sinful? Right? You fantasized about, I wish I could win the lottery, and then I would do this with the money and that with the money, and I would move to such and such a location. And basically, there's a big gangster dream in there somewhere about all the junk you were going to do. That, that was the desire of your heart. What Psalm is saying is that when we walk in fellowship with the Lord, he gives us the proper desires of our heart. Yeah. I asked a couple of years ago by someone who was capable of giving me a million dollars, what would you do if someone just gave you a million dollars? And I immediately thought about the ministry, and I began to relay that to them. And in particular, at the time, I was like, dude, we would reinstitute the K through 12 school. We would hire teachers. We would, you know, I'm just going through like, what would I do? Which had everything to do with the kingdom and nothing to do with me. I'm sure if somebody put a million dollars in my hands, right, I'm not that noble. I would have had struggles with my flesh. But my dream was, wow, that would be fantastic for the kingdom. For the kingdom. Oh, rewind 30 years, man. You know, when I'm 18, 19, 20 years old, that would not have been the same desire. God has given me his desires. And so today, the things I ask for are the things he wants me to have. I'm asking for little outside of that. And I say little because often when I ask for things outside that, he quickly shows me that's not my will. He corrects me in that. Here, when we're hearing you know, this confident asking what we want, he hears us, he knows, hears, ask, he'll 
give you what you ask. It's the idea of if you are a child of God and you are in his will, then when you ask, it will be given to you. James corrects the situation, right? In the book of James, when he says you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you might have spend it on your lust. The things of our flesh. The Lord's not going to grant that to you. Not because he's vindictive, because he's trying to protect you from yourself. You're the most dangerous element to yourself. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about this. So listen, just to clear it up really easily, right? Death is separation from God, right? You see somebody who professes faith, who is renouncing Christ and living against the Lord. There's an entirely different prayer. Save them. Save them from themselves. Save them from death, right? Read Revelation and see there, this is the second death. Hell, punishment, right? Uh, How about this? Sometimes we get mature enough to where we see somebody else who professes faith and they have sin in their life. I know that just seems impossible, but it happens. And we look over and we act like, oh, man, I wonder if they're even saved. Why? Because they're doing something you would never do. Turn the tables. Right? Are they looking at your life and seeing a sin that they would never do? Right? We want to be careful about how we judge our brothers and sisters. Hey, prayer is very important. A lot of people do not get that, how significant and important prayer is. Right? You see my sin, you see my shortcoming, I would really, really appreciate it if you prayed for me. Right? If you snap a quick photo and then you post it on the internet, that's probably not going to help me leave that sin behind, is it? And that's generally what our flesh likes to do. Collect tidbits of information like that and then use them against that person. <laughs> right? Turn the mirror around. Look at yourself. My, my sin, my shortcomings always look so much worse when someone else is doing it. You know what I'm saying? I just can't even, I just, they're doing the exact same thing. And I just can't even believe the way they behave. Just so terrible. You know, probably my wife would be able to tell me when I had done that very thing, you know, just moments ago. I think you see within this, the idea of graciousness. Yeah, guess what? You're going to see Christians sin. If you thought you weren't going to, you're wildly deceived. You're going to see Christians sin and they need your prayerful help. They need it. Why? Because you need it. Your shortcomings, your temper, your lying tongue, your covetousness, your anger, whatever, fill in the blank, do whatever it is. We, We need to pray for one another. You see somebody who's declaring themselves a believer, but then they're showing the evidence that they are not. That is a frightening moment. That is a frightening moment. And I've had the unfortunate experience of seeing that a couple times. Seeing someone conduct themselves in such a way that I was literally left thinking that there's no way they're saved. If they're saying they're a believer and they're conducting themselves in this, you know, a Christian wouldn't be capable of doing this. I'm not talking minor things. Serious business, life and death, heaven and hell, eternity is at stake. And here we see the degree. To what degree are you praying? I, I I have brothers in the Lord who pray and fast for me regularly. That is humbling, man. It is humbling to know that there are people 
who take my life, my walk, my ministry seriously enough that they are on their knees before the Lord for me. How about if we do the same? Not go the way of the world and publicize. Love covers a multitude of sins. 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And again, uh, we got like two and a half minutes and I just want to get this really burned into this concept here because it's the idea of continuing perpetually in sin. You're going to stumble. Okay. Um, so drunkenness, drug use, uh, sexual sin, theft, lying, those were all very prominent parts of my life before I surrendered my life to Christ. Daily, continuously, perpetually pursuing those things. They are not part of my life at all today. But you might see me in my weakness just flare because of the flesh. I need prayer. I need forgiveness. I need grace. This idea here is the perpetual continuation of practicing that sin. So we know that whoever is born of God does not practice, continue perpetually in sin is what the original language says here. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Protection, right? Constant prayer and vigilance to keep ourselves from these things. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. By contrast, we used to live this way and we've been delivered from living that way continuously and it's an evidence that we are not of the world. The world is this way and we are not this way. We were this way and we no longer are this way, right? So this is what John is saying in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. And this is most specifically speaking of Christ and the fact that we are in Christ and we know we are in Christ. We know him. He knows us. But it also has that subsetting of and we also are able to use discernment in our human relationships when somebody claims I'm of God and yet we can see they're of the world. Right. So we have that fellowship that is of the Lord. So we are uh, here. Uh, we know that we are the, of the Son of God. Or, or we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him, capital H, who is true, and we are in Him, capital H, who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Not one of the false gods. Not one of the lesser gods. Not one of the small G gods. This is the God, the evidence of how we've been changed and transformed. Born again, little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Okay. And again, just to reiterate, right, because the church is all concerned about circumcision versus non-circumcision, and everybody's up in arms about this until Acts 15. And they come together at the Jerusalem Council, and they seek the Lord, and the Holy Spirit says to them and through them, and particularly James puts that point forward, that the believers should keep themselves from two things, sexual immorality and idolatry. Okay, Listen, our culture is permeated by sexual immorality. Everywhere you go, they're, they're just promoting it and selling, and look what's going on in our schools and our children and the garbage, right? Our, our culture is just saturated with sexual immorality and idolatry. Most prevalently in our culture, materialism. Our culture. Money, possessions, you know, all the things of the world. Uh, the, the, the idols that would steal your heart and keep you from the Lord. Uh, we need uh, to keep ourselves in that place of, of prominent strength in I have only one God. It is God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit working together that keeps me from compromising my relationship with them 
with other things. There, there, there is one dominance. Uh, Chuck Smith said early on in his ministry, uh, idols uh, you know, easily beset us. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you have to constantly be vigilant about it. And the thing that will show you what your God is, because it's deceptive, isn't it? The thing that will show you what your God is, is what is your master passion? What are you completely impassioned about? Because look, if it's entertainment, if it's the television, if it's the series, if it's um, you know, sport, you know, adrenaline fueled sports, if it's money, uh, if it's if it's any other thing, if if Jesus Christ is second, if that other thing has the dominance, then that's your God. And He said, "Don't kid yourself." And I and I've taken that to heart. You know, don't deceive yourself. If you're more concerned about how your business is doing, if you're more concerned about the bank account, if you're more concerned about, you know, the, the sporting event or whatever, than you are your relationship with Christ, then just own it. Just own it. Just confess, that's, that's my God, small g. And I know there's one true living God, which we just read about here, and, and ask the one true living God to destroy because he'll always he'll always take good care of you in the process. He'll dismantle that God uh, very carefully and, and and very lovingly, right? He doesn't laugh gleefully as he streaks out of the sky and just smashes your little God to bits and you're left with nothing, right? He wants you to fall in love with him. But he also knows how poorly that little G God is treating you, right? So... Uh, make sure that uh, your master passion is, in fact, Jesus Christ, and thereby, uh, you know, the Heavenly Father. And uh, this is how we find all of this fulfillment. And uh, in that, that's where the assurance of salvation is, is in the abiding in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are very gracious, uh, very grateful, rather, for um, your love. And uh, some of this is very cutting, um, the way that it is so direct about who God is and who he's not and, and what you want and, and what you desire and our keeping of the commandment and, and the understanding how challenging that is as we combat our flesh lord please give us the strength of your holy spirit to love you to honor you to follow you uh, to see your will being done in our lives lord that that we would um, in examining ourselves be able to comfortably say i know i'm in the right place with the lord accomplish your work and your will in us lord we we bow to your authority we submit uh, to your Godhead, and we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in us and through us and by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.